True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. Welcome to True Crime South Africa. I'm your host, Nicole Engelbrecht, and this is episode 31, The Mind Dump Child Killer. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank everyone who continues to provide support through Patreon and PayPal. Your contributions are so welcome, and they are used to keep the show growing and improving. If you'd like to support the show through Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave the links in the show notes. I'd also like to thank everyone who supports the show by inviting their friends and family to listen. Word of mouth is one of the most powerful ways to spread the news about the podcast, and I really appreciate everyone's efforts to grow our listenership. Just a reminder that I do take suggestions for cases, and if you go to our Facebook group, there's a pinned Google form at the top of the group which you can use to submit your suggestions. That helps me to keep everything in one place. I chose to cover today's case because we all find serial killer cases interesting and this one's a bit different. The perpetrator in this case was a ghost of sorts. His birth had never been registered and if he hadn't been caught for committing other crimes, the system would likely never have known he existed. This case is also different because despite police being aware that there was a serial offender on the loose and a profile being drawn up, the offender was actually caught by a member of the public, twice. Famed detective Pete Bailevelt was involved in the case, but only after the man was apprehended, both times. Bailevelt says in his book, Dossier of a Serial Sleuth, which I used as one of my resources for this episode, that the offender in this case was one of the strangest people he had ever interrogated. And for a man who, during his career, arrested and interrogated some of South Africa's most violent offenders, that's saying a lot. Today's case does include horrific violence and sexual assault against children, so please do consider whether you may be triggered by such content. Cases involving children are, of course, never easy to cover, and many podcasters avoid them. I feel that the difficult cases are the most important ones to talk about, though. Giving a voice to victims is the reason that I do this, and the most vulnerable of our society deserves that just as much as any other victim. I read a comment on a social media page the other day regarding a particular podcaster who occasionally covers child murders. The commenter reckoned that the host had to have a, quote, screw loose to be able to talk about such things. I respectfully disagree. Some people cannot talk about or listen to these cases, and that's absolutely fine. I would rather not be telling these stories, because I would rather that they hadn't happened at all. But they did happen, and they continue to happen. And if we remain silent, we allow the perpetrators' names to become known, and the victims' voices to be taken again. So maybe there is something wrong with me, as social media critics will purport, because I talk about children whose lives were viciously snatched away. And you know what? I'm okay with that. Let's get into episode 31, The Mind Dump Child Killer. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. 
Mklomayo, near Ladysmith in KwaZulu-Natal, is a mountainous region of the province. It's a relatively rural area, occupied largely by people who've grown up there. Livestock farming is popular in the area, which is about 40 kilometers outside of Ladysmith. In a community that's rather closed off from the rest of the world, deviants are dealt with most frequently by the community. For many years, such communities didn't trust police, and that aversion didn't immediately disappear when apartheid officially ended. Often, community justice is useful for petty crimes. It keeps people in line and helps them to recognize that if they want to be part of the community, they cannot lie, cheat or steal from their neighbors. In 2003, though, Mflumayo would be forced to recognize that their brand of justice didn't work on everyone. And sometimes, a deviant child is far more dangerous than they appear. On that day in 2003, police drove into town and started asking questions about a previous resident of Mklumayo. He was a man who had fled the town two years before, and the community, and what was left of his family, had hoped that the young man had gone on to live a better life in Johannesburg. They were sorely mistaken. The aunt of one Sipu Dube was one of the last remaining members of his family left there. She recalled being shocked when police told her what her nephew was accused of doing. As she started to tell the tale of Sipo Dube's childhood, though, for police and profilers, the pieces all started to fall in place. Sipo Dube was born in 1976. We don't know what day, and seemingly neither does he because his birth was never registered. The government of South Africa was never advised that a baby called Sipo Dube had entered the world. He had no birth certificate or identity book, and his fingerprints never entered the system. Sipo Dube was a ghost, but he'd been very real to the people of Mklumayo. Sipo's father was never officially identified, but his aunt would say that she blamed the way the child had turned out on that nameless father. In the Zulu culture, animal sacrifices are an important way to thank the ancestors for rites of passage in life, such as births, graduations and marriages. Sipo's aunt believes that the fact that his father did not sacrifice an animal to celebrate his birth, was just the beginning of the boy's troubles. Sipo's mother was a traditional healer, or sangoma. I've discussed this concept in previous episodes, but to recap for our non-SA listeners, a sangoma in African culture is similar to a medicine man in Native American culture, or traditional healers in many other cultures including the First Nation people of Canada and Aboriginal people of Australia. Sangomas in modern African culture are still widely respected, and we even have an organisation that facilitates the activities of traditional healers. And this is partly because the practice for some has a darker side. While Sangomas in the traditional sense of the word use herbs plants and sometimes animal body parts for healing. There are a few who are believed to use human body parts in their practice. South Africa has long been plagued with muti murders, which are alleged to be arranged by deviant sangomas to gain genitals, hearts and other body parts to be used in powerful spells and medicine. Human-based muti is rejected by most traditional healers as taboo. But it is alleged that Sipo Dube's mother was a sangoma who had no problem 
using human body parts in her muti. Sipo's aunt would tell police that the boy had been difficult to deal with from a very young age. He committed his first known crime at the age of seven, when he stole a neighbor's radio. When he was caught and questioned, he allegedly told the victims that they were full of shit and should mind their own business. When he was ten years old, he stole money from the local church altar and his mother kicked him out of her house, sending him to live with his grandmother nearby. It's alleged that people were afraid of Sipo from a very early age. He had an incredible temper that would erupt without warning, and he had no problem being violent with children and adults alike. His teachers had no control over him, and although they admitted that the boy hardly ever attended classes anyway, when he did, he created chaos, beating up fellow students, threatening teachers, and refusing to listen to anyone. Sipo was expelled from school in grade 5 and never returned. Sadly, his teachers would add that he was actually one of their most intelligent pupils, and he spoke English better than some of his teachers did. Years later, they would wonder what they could have done to turn little Sipo around. Shortly after he was expelled from school, Sipo Dubé was hit by a bus. Barely clinging to life, he was rushed to hospital, where he spent four months having his legs reconstructed. He would bear the scars for the rest of his life. His aunt believes that this was another turning point for the boy. After the accident, he seemed to have absolutely no control over his anger. Because Sipo's life is largely undocumented, we have to rely on the memories of his family members, as well as his own claims as to the events that made him who he was. Sipo would claim that when he was a child, he was sexually molested by a visitor to the community. He says that the man had not penetrated him, but he'd placed his penis between the boy's thighs and simulated sex. Sipo says that this event had only served to fuel the anger that was already growing inside him, and from that day, he wanted to regain control by committing the same acts against other children. Shockingly, residents of Mplumayo would say that as Sipo grew into a teenager, it wasn't strange to see him dragging young girls into bushes, presumably to rape them. None of these rapes were ever reported, and the community was so afraid of Sipo and his Sangoma mother that he was simply allowed to continue his activities. In 1997, when Sipo was 21, a neighbour had finally had enough of his reign of terror and reported him to police for breaking into their home and stealing several items. He was sentenced to 18 months in prison for theft. In 1999, he was out again, repeated a similar offence, and was sent back to jail for housebreaking. In 2000, he was back in Plumayo, but not for long. We'll never know exactly how many sexual assaults and rapes Sipo Dube committed, but on his return to his hometown, he so severely sexually assaulted a young girl that the community turned on him. With his neighbours baying for his blood, Sipo Dube fled Mklomayo. He would never return. We don't know Sipo's exact movements between 2000 and 2002 when he appeared in Johannesburg, but before he headed out to the City of Gold, he racked up at least two more victims, one being what is believed to be his first murder. In 2001, Sipo accosted a young boy who was riding his bicycle in Vienna, 30 kilometers from Mklomayo. The word Vienna is Dutch for wept. The child was sodomized 
and it was during this crime that Sipo started a strange ritual with his victims. Despite being atrociously violent and already a raging alcoholic, Sipo had dreams of becoming a pastor. He allegedly had significant knowledge of the Bible, and he decided that the fate of his victims would be determined by prayer. After sexually assaulting his victim, he would say a prayer, and if it was what he considered to be a good prayer, he would allow the person to live. If his prayer was bad, they would die. The young boy in Vienna was left alive. On the 23rd of March 2001, Rashanthi Singh, a widow and mother of two, told her mother that she was going to the bank and she'd return home a bit later. In reality, Rashanthi had met a man that she enjoyed spending time with, and she knew her mother wouldn't approve of the relationship, so the couple kept their meeting secret. On that day, they had arranged to meet at the Burgers Fort Monument on Wagon Hill near Ladysmith. The couple were chatting when they were approached by a man who wanted to rob them. Rushanthi's male companion had taken the opportunity to run away, but she was left to suffer a violent beating. Her body was later found by a passerby. Her face was completely unidentifiable, as she'd been beaten with several rocks, which lay around her body, splattered with blood. She had not been raped. Sipo Dube had committed his first murder. Although it would be another two years before anyone connected him to the crime. Now a murderer, Sipo fled to Johannesburg. The south of Johannesburg and its mine dumps seemed to hold a strange attraction for serial killers. Moses Satole, Cedric Markey, David Silepi, Lazarus Mazinga, and even Daisy Demelka all started their murders around the mountains of waste created as a byproduct of gold mining. The dumps have grown vegetation in areas over the years, but by and large, they remain areas that you really only go into if you need a secluded place to do something you shouldn't be doing. It was around these mine dumps, under a bridge, that Sipo Dube made his home. He had no money when he arrived in Johannesburg, no job, and although his mother would join him there not long afterwards, he continued to live on the street. He quickly gained a reputation among the homeless community as an extremely violent alcoholic. He also gained a reputation for having extremely poor hygiene, even by the standards of homeless people, who of course don't have access to facilities to maintain hygiene. Most of these people, though, make an effort to find places to clean themselves and their clothes when possible. Not Sipodube, though. He spent his time drinking and drifting on the streets, committing petty thefts, and soon, hunting. Forensic psychologist and profiler Gerard Labaskachny would later recall in an episode of his podcast, Profiler Africa, that toward the end of 2002, he and his behavioural psychology unit at the SAPS had become aware of a case of a serial child rapist in the south of Johannesburg. His boss had actually heard about the case by chance on the radio. It was reported that a profile had been created for the offender, which Gerard and team found strange, since they hadn't created any such profile. Gerard approached the officers handling the case, and discovered that they'd used a staff criminologist to draw up a profile of the offender. Gerard offered to have his units draw up a comparable profile as they had a lot more training and experience in dealing with, with serial offenders. As he looked into the four crimes in question, which had been committed between August and October of 2002, 
he immediately noticed an escalation in violence. All of the children had been lured into the mine dumps with promises of money, cell phones or toys in exchange for their assistance with some task that the offender alleged he wanted done. The crimes were shocking in nature, with the children being subjected to violent rapes. With some of the children, the offender would sickeningly give them options. They could choose between dying by stabbing, dying by strangulation, or they could choose to walk free, but in return, they had to act like his wives, as he put it. In this absolutely twisted and stomach-turning manipulation, the offender made his victims choose the only option available to them, which led to their rape. It was the increased use of force that worried Gerard, though, and he included this in the profile that he presented to the detectives on the case. As the officers on the case belonged to units that only investigated sex crimes, Gerard's concern was that if their offender progressed to murder, which the increase in violence seemed to indicate was probable, these detectives would have no idea, because a detective from the murder units would attend the scene. He suggested that a memo be circulated to all detectives in the area, that if a child murder was reported, the detectives on the rape series should be advised. It would later emerge that the sex crimes units had identified a suspect from the description of one of the young victims. She described the man as short, with a goatee, and she recalled the terrible smell of body odour and stale alcohol which had permeated the air as he assaulted her. Inquiries in the area had led detectives to Sipo Dube, who they found living under a bridge near the scenes. Gerard Labaskachny described his horror at hearing how detectives had handled this identification. Instead of following procedure and arranging a lineup in which the victim would be protected and feel safe to give her opinion on whether this was the man who'd raped her, detectives picked up Sipo Dube, drove him to the home of the victim, and stood him in front of her. The little girl was asked if this was the man who had raped her, and what do you think she said? Of course she said no, because why in hell would she incriminate this vicious, violent man, who she was likely terrified of, and who now knew where she lived? So the police released him. They returned the troll to his bridge, and when Gerard asked if they'd taken any identifying information, they claimed they had no reason to. This interaction with police had a twofold effect on Sipadube, in my opinion. Firstly, although his violence was already increasing, and he was probably always going to end up killing a child, I have to think that he must have considered that leaving his victims alive was a risk, which had just been proven to him. Sipo seemed to quite enjoy this interaction from a narcissistic perspective. It probably made him feel omnipotent, and as though he could continue doing as he pleased without being caught. It's not uncommon for killers to insert themselves into investigations. It helps them to determine where police are in the case, and it also gives them a thrill to be so close to police with them having no idea that their killer's standing right in front of them. Sipo Dube took this to another level. In January 2003, 10-year-old Lucanio Kuane was walking with a friend near Wemapan when they were accosted by Sipo Dube. Lucania's friend ran away, 
and an hour later, a passing motorist found the severely beaten body of the ten-year-old on the side of the road. The child had been sexually assaulted and beaten around the head, and in his face with stones. He was barely clinging to life and unable to speak or see. The motorist stopped and called an ambulance, and a few pedestrians stopped to offer help. One was a homeless man, who presented with a rather bad body odour. Sipo Dube watched with others as his victim was attended to. The motorist eventually decided that the ambulance was taking too long, and he would take Lucanio to the hospital himself. Sipo Dube helped lift the child into the back seat of the man's car. I can only hope that Lucanio was not aware of what was going on around him at that point, because I cannot imagine the terror of being unable to speak or see, laying an unbelievable pain on the side of the road, and then hearing the voice of your attacker, or smelling his stench with no way to communicate to those around you that it's him. He's the one. Lucanio passed away in hospital the next day. He's believed to be the first child murder victim of Sipo Dube. Gerard Labaskachny's warning to sex crimes detectives that their serial rapist was about to become a murderer had come to fruition. They just didn't know it yet. Possibly because Lucanio survived to get to the hospital, his murder was not immediately brought to their attention. They'd not seen any more rapes that they believed to be committed by their offender, and so they waited for the seemingly inevitable call from the murder unit. That call came on the 25th of April, 2003. Twelve days earlier, a 14-year-old boy had been reported missing by his parents. Tabod Longolo was a responsible child, and the minute he didn't return from an errand, his parents knew something was wrong. Sadly, although the missing persons report was logged, a body that was found would not be identified as Tabo's until two years after his disappearance. In all fairness, there were very few identifying characteristics left behind when Tabo was found. He'd been sexually assaulted and beaten severely around the head and face. In a horrifying development, Tabo's arms had been severed and removed from the scene. The boy's parents had received telephone calls in the days after their son had gone missing, a man calling himself Sipo had called twice and told Tabo's parents that they should forget about their child because he was dead and dumped in the bushes. Tabo would be buried in a pauper's grave while his parents had no idea about his whereabouts for two years and Sipo Dube continued with his hunt. A few months after Tabo's body was found, in August 2003, 14-year-old Nikelo Jumba was walking home from school when she was lured onto the mine dumps. Her body was found at the bottom of the hill. She'd been raped and stabbed in the armpit, chest and neck. As police surveyed the scene, a man appeared from the mine dump. He claimed to have seen everything. He led police up the hill to Nomnikello's bloody school blazer and school books. He told police that the girl had been raped and stabbed at that spot, and then she'd escaped and run down the hill before collapsing and dying where she'd been found. As police listened to the vagrant describe events, they made a huge mistake. They failed to notice nor Michelo's blood on the man's shoes. Sipo Dube walked away from the scene. On the 26th of September 2003, cousins Anele Mbuku, 9, and Siabonga, 
Mbuku, 12, arrived at their home in Malvern with an older man in tow. The boys had met Sipo Dube on the street, and he'd offered them a toy figurine for a few rand. The boys had come to ask Anelia's mother if she could buy the figurine for them. The woman said she didn't have any money, and asked Sipo to leave. A few minutes later, she went to look for the boys, and found them speaking to Dube outside. She told the man that if he didn't leave, she was going to call police. She instructed the boys to follow her inside. Unfortunately, the boys didn't listen. Instead, they followed Sipo Dube, and they were never seen again. On the 8th of November, 2003, 11-year-old Tina Bernardis was with her cousin and her aunt, who sold second-hand clothing on the streets of Johannesburg. The young girl was described by her parents as kind and fun-loving, and always ready with a smile. Tina's aunt was approached by a man, who told her that he had two cell phones to sell, and if she helped him with them, she could keep part of the profit. The woman instructed Tina and her cousin to go with the man to fetch the phones. She was convinced that it was a safe situation, as both children were going together, and the man seemed genuinely concerned about their safety, even reminding the woman to give them a plastic bag to wrap the phones in, so that they didn't become victims of robbery on their way back. Tina and her cousin walked a few blocks with the man, and as they neared the mine dumps, her cousin became fearful and stopped walking. Tina said that she had to go with him because her aunt had instructed her to, and she'd be angry if she didn't carry out her instructions. Her cousin turned around, and the man gripped Tina's arm as they made their way up the hill disappearing into the mine dump. When Tina didn't return from the errand, her family jumped into action immediately. Her mother Jackie and father Tino galvanised the community of which they were long-term residents, and soon posters were distributed, and Tino was talking to local vagrants to find out if they had seen anything. One homeless man, Alfred Nyanga, said that he had seen a man that he knew as Sipo walking with a young girl that morning. Tino gave the man 50 rand and asked him to call if he saw the man again. Just an hour later, Tino received a call from Alfred. He told the desperate father where to find Sipo. Tino jumped into his brother's car and within 10 minutes they'd bundled Sipo Dube into the back of the vehicle. Yes, this is technically kidnapping, but I think we can look past that considering the circumstances. They took Sipo to Tina's aunt, who confirmed that this was the man who'd walked away with Tina. Their next stop was the police station, where they handed over Sipo Dube as the man who had taken Tina Bernardi's. Little did he know but this terrified father had, with the help of a homeless man, apprehended one of South Africa's most horrifying child murderers. Sadly, there would not be a happy ending for the Bernardes family, as later that same day, Tina's body was found on a nearby mine dump. She appeared to have been sexually assaulted. She had been beaten around the head, with bloodied rocks that lay nearby, and then one of her fingers had been removed and taken from the scene. It was only after his arrest that police realised that they were dealing with the ghost, an undocumented person, who not only wouldn't speak to them, but wouldn't speak at all. Sipo Dube also entered a hunger strike, although he refused to say what he was protesting against. Police suspected that this was not Sipo's first crime, 
and they started to retrieve dockets for unsolved child murders that they thought could be attributed to him. Now they just had to get him to talk. On the 12th of November, Pitt Bailefeld was told that there was a suspected serial killer in custody, and he was handed the docket for Tina Bernardi's murder and asked to try and get through to Dubé. Pitt found Dubé to be quite a challenge. For the first two interrogations, he spent the entire time growling at Pitt like a dog. The seasoned officer said he'd never seen anything like it in his career. When an officer made an offhand comment to Pitt that Dubé constantly picked up cigarette butts from the floor and carried them in his pocket, he thought perhaps he should try a third time. This time, he brought cigarettes. The change in Dubé, according to Pitt, was visible. He softened and, as he smoked to his heart's content, began to spill the beans. He told Pitts that he actually wasn't sure how many people he'd killed, but he would tell about the ones he remembered and take him to the scenes. As a reward, Pitt brought the man chips, bread and milk, which he readily devoured. The full scope of Sipo Dubé's crimes began to emerge, as he admitted to killing Lucanio Kowani, Nomnikelo Jumba, Anele and Siabongo Mbuku, and Tina Bernardis. He also helped police to solve the riddle of missing Tabod Longolo by telling them that he had severed the arms of one of his young victims and phoned the child's father. By putting this together, police then showed Tabo's distraught parents pictures of the original crime scene, and two years after their son had been murdered, they identified him by the clothing he had worn that day. Tabu Lungolo was given his name back. Semen found on the body of one of the victims was the only physical evidence tying Sipo Dube to these crimes, but with his pointing out the scenes, confessions and admissions of information that only the killer would know, police felt that they had a strong enough case against him. He was also tied back to the four sexual assaults, and the profile that Gerard Labaskachny had drawn up fit him like a glove. Sadly, the bodies of Anene and Siabonga Mbuku have never been found. Pizza described a relationship of intense adoration and even more intense hatred that Supo Dube had with his mother. He begged Pitt to take him to his mother, but when he did, the man launched into a verbal tirade against the woman, accusing her of being the reason that he'd killed. He also told Pitt, and this could never be confirmed, that the body parts he'd removed from some of his victims had been gifts for his mother to use in her muti. He claimed that she had accepted the body parts without question. She didn't ever ask him where they'd come from. Police did search the premises of Sipo's mother, but found no trace of human body parts at her home. Alfred Nyanga, the homeless man who was essentially the hero of the tale, along with Tina's dad, would have been the state's star witness in the trial. He had seen Sipo with Tina, after all. Unfortunately, Alfred had disappeared. He was never seen again. Rumour had it that he was either removed by people affiliated with Sipo's mother, or having heard that the woman was a Sangoma, Alfred had fled in fear that he would be cursed for testifying against her son. Sipo languished in jail while the state built their case against him and prepared for trial. Unfortunately, there would be a few hiccups in the road before then. On the 13th of January 2004, Sipo Dube was erroneously booked out of jail and transported to Weinberg Prison. It seems that he was mistaken for another prisoner, who was due to appear in court that day.
When Sipo was asked his name at court, and it became known that he was not on the court roll for that day, court orderlies took an inexplicable course of action. Instead of sending him back to jail to figure out what the mix-up had been, they walked Sipo Dube, serial child killer and rapist, to the door of the court, opened it, and told him he was free to go. He would later laugh as he described how the orderly had held the door for him as he walked into the street, a free man. Pitt Bailefeld described finding out that Dubé had been accidentally released as the moment that his fellow police officers saw a side of him they'd never seen before. The officers and the court orderlies involved in the bungle that day were disciplined, but that didn't bring back a highly dangerous criminal. And so, the hunt began. Over the next three months, Bailefeld headed up a manhunt for Sipo Dube, terrified that a child may lose their life because of a stupid mistake. Sipo's mother agreed to help police find her son, but although it could never be proven, they believed she sent them on a wild goose chase by telling them that her son had fled to KwaZulu-Natal. Officers spent five days in the province searching for the man to no avail. One day, an eagle-eyed police officer spotted something on the intake sheet of an offender who'd been arrested just four days after Sipo Dube had escaped. The offender, who was awaiting trial for attempted car theft, had been apprehended by a member of the public. The offender had been booked in under the name Clifford Mbata, but the next of kin name was Mavis Dube, and the cell phone number matched Sipo Dube's mother. The officer made a call to Pit Bailefeld, and within the hour, the man was looking at Sipo Dube's smiling face through the bars of his cell. He greeted Pitt with, Sorry, Mr. Pitt. Despite the huge amount of wasted resources, Bailefeld was just glad that Sipo had only been back on the streets for four days and hadn't harmed any more children. As a form of apology to the detective, who seemed to have earned his trust, Sipo told Pitt that he wanted to tell him about a murder he committed in Ladysmith too. He confessed to the murder of 38-year-old Rishanthi Singh, whose murder was still unsolved. Without this confession, there is no doubt that the crime would never have been tied to Dubé, as it's so far outside of his victim profile and modus operandi. This murder was added to his charge sheet, and eventually he faced 41 total charges of murder, rape, robbery, and assault. He pleaded not guilty to all of them. Pete Bailefeld says that it's not uncommon for offenders that confess to him and with whom he forms a bond of trust to suddenly turn on him in the courtroom. He'd experienced it many times, and it was almost as though the reality of the courtroom caused the offenders to suddenly realise that they'd been lulled into a place of trust by Bailefeld. Of course, the man never gave any of these offenders the impression that if they confessed, they wouldn't face court action. But it seemed that these largely intelligent men found it embarrassing that this police officer had gotten them to talk about their crimes. Sipo Dube, of course, was no different. But the way he showed his disdain for the system was seriously over the top. If anyone was in any doubt as to which side of Sipo Dube his victims had seen just before their deaths, they received a very clear display in court. Hardly a day went by without an outburst from Dube. He screamed at photographers and court sketch artists that if they took his photo or sketched him, he would strangle them and drive over their testicles with a car. He threw himself downstairs, 
tried to set himself on fire, and even ripped a microphone out of the dock and threw it at the victims' families. Sipo Dubé's psychiatric assessment came back with no diagnosis, but he would later say that he didn't need a psychiatrist to tell him how a serial killer was made. In the words of Sipo Dubé, quote, When anger boils up inside, and I have no outlet to cool me down, I lash out. But when I kill, I smile. That is a serial killer. End quote. Sipo Dubé was found guilty of 30 of the 41 charges against him and sentenced to 10 life sentences plus an additional 114 years in prison without the possibility of parole. He screamed profanities at the victims' families as he was led down the stairs of the court. The families of Dubé's victims were happy with the sentence, although they acknowledged that nothing would bring back their children. Anele Mbuku's mother had suffered another loss since his death, when her daughter had also passed away. During testimony, Dube claimed that Anele and Siabonga's bodies would not be found because he'd given them to Sangomas to use as muti. Tina Bernardi's parents wished that they could find Alfred Nyanga to thank him in person for risking his life to help their family. Jackie says that her husband went through a phase of deep anger after Tina's death and that he'd once broken every plate in their kitchen in a rage against the injustice that Sipo Dube had brought to their family. Now he gardens instead, and has built a memorial garden to honour his daughter's memory. In a cruel twist of the proverbial knife, Tino's employer fired him for taking time off to arrange his daughter's funeral. Tina's parents recognised the sad irony that it took the death of their daughter to save the lives of others, as she was the reason he was taken off the streets. The rift seemed evident in the Bernardi's family during the trial, as Tina's aunt's actions that day were seen as extremely irresponsible. Tabud Longolo's parents were just glad to have their child's remains so that they could lay him to rest in a proper burial, in a place of their choosing. His mother spoke of how her heart broke as she looked at photographs of her son's body and saw the damage that had been done to him. In 2010, a suddenly meek and mild Sipo Dube contacted a reporter for the Sowetan and asked him to write a story requesting that the families of the victims come and visit him in jail so that he could tell them about their children's last moments and apologise to them. It's unknown whether any of them went, but I certainly hope they didn't. Sipo told the reporter that jail was a really hard life, and he realised now how much pain he caused. He complained that his fellow inmates were afraid of him, and he just didn't know why. Sipo Dube is a case that, in my opinion, explains how serial murders, and murders in general, can remain unsolved for decades. Sipo lived the life of a phantom. He had no roots and nothing to bind him anywhere, and that worked in his favour when he hunted his victims. He was a stranger to his victims, and even when he so blatantly inserted himself into an investigation, he presented as so unempowered, so completely disenfranchised, that no one thought he could be capable of the savagery that lay before them. If it hadn't been for Alfred and Younger, and then the man who refused to let an attempted car thief get away, Sipo Dube might still be out there. 
In this case, it's difficult to say whether profiles or police investigations would really have helped. In the end, it just took the right combination of circumstances to stop the killer. With the huge number of missing children and unsolved child murders in South Africa, the question must be asked, how many more Sipo Dubes are out there at this very moment? Sipo Dube will die in prison. The memory of his victims will live on in the minds of their parents and those who loved them. They were innocent children, and they should never have been memories. But thanks to a man whose anger was stronger than his humanity, remembering them is now all we can do. Rushanti Singh Lucanio Kuani Tabo Longolo Nomnikelo Jumba Anele Mbuku Siabonga Mbuku Antina Bernardis You are remembered. Thank you for listening to episode 31, The Mind Dump Child Killer. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to the show on the app that you're using to listen right now. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. For the duration of our initial lockdown, I've been releasing full episodes every week, instead of alternating with minisodes. I will admit it's been quite tough to research, write, record and edit full cases every week, along with the other work that I do. So as of next week, I'm going to be returning to my normal release schedule. But I do have lots of of exciting things coming up, including book reviews on true crime books and crime fiction books, interviews with some true crime authors, and a few case updates as well. As much as it has been stressful sticking to a weekly release schedule, I've also really enjoyed it. And the dream is that one day I'll be able to do this full time and bring you more content than you can handle. I hope that for most of you, life will be returning to some sense of normality soon and that we'll be able to start recovering clients, businesses and jobs that we may have lost due to lockdown. As always, I'm truly grateful for your unwavering support. I will be back next week with a mini-side. Until then, stay safe, and I'll chat to you soon.